within the heart of each of us is the desire to explore, to venture out, to leave behind the ordinary and find something new. New places, new paths, new challenges. We look for adventure and for a tomorrow that asks more of us than today. We want to hear the wind in the trees. We want to look out across the expanses. We want to take in the beauty around us and find the thrill the average person never does. So we set out to find a better way in our relationships, in our pursuits, and in our faith. Life Trails, take the next step. time it was made. It was in October of 2017 when a bombshell story fell and involved uh, sexual allegations against movie mogul Harvey Weinstein. He was accused over the course of 30 years of intimidating or sexually harassing or taking advantage of or preying on vulnerable women. By the time the dust had settled, over 80 different women had come forward with accusations and today he is in prison where he should be. It was at that time that actress Alyssa Milano responded to the story by posting this hashtag to her Twitter post. And maybe you remember this, and maybe you participated in this because this hashtag became viral. And the point that she was making, and even though she was not involved in that situation, is that she had herself been uh, abused by somebody else, and that this story was unfortunately all too common. And as I mentioned, this hashtag went viral, and so many people on their social media posts put the same thing, reflecting on times where they have been the target of unwanted and inappropriate advances. Maybe you were one of the people who posted that as well. But as I think back to that story, the thing that struck me then, and that struck, struck, strikes me now, is how did that go on for so long? And how did that affect so many people? And why didn't something get said any sooner than what it was said? And I don't think there's a simple answer to that question. I think there's a lot of different factors that are involved. One of the factors that were involved was, is they've, they've gone back and looked at this. There was a lot of hush money that was paid to keep people quiet and from saying things and, and from doing any damage. And so some of it was just through extreme measures, that it was suppressed. The truth was suppressed. I think also, though, there were elements of fear that were a huge part of that situation. A fear of women to, to come forward for fear that there would be retribution or for fear that the, their careers would be ended or that they would be blacklisted in, in Hollywood. And fears that maybe if they came forward that nobody would really believe them or that they would actually have the, the story flipped on them and they would be accused. But I think there was another element that was at play in that, and that was the element of shame. Because if you come forward with that, then everybody knows. And when you're carrying around a burden like that, that's the last thing that you want, is you don't want people to know. It's hard enough that you, that you know yourself, and you don't want other people to be a part of that. Well, back at the beginning of November, we started on a series called No Shame November, and if you're 
thinking right now, we're no longer in November, we're in December, but I felt like there were still a couple of issues in this shame um, category that we still need to talk about because I think we really struggle with them. And this morning I want to talk about this. What do we do when we feel shame over something that we haven't done, but then has been done to us? Or that's been done and somehow we were party to it, even though not willingly. And I think we feel humiliation and regret and remorse, and it can a lot of times slide into shame. And it's not our fault. Now, we started out talking about, well, what do you do when you have done something, you are guilty, and, and you do feel shame from that, and that makes a whole lot more sense to me, doesn't it? Like, okay, yeah, I have that coming. I asked for that a little bit. But why is it that when something's actually done to us and we're, we're on the other side of, of the ledger there, why is it that we sometimes or often feel shame when somebody else's inappropriate action makes us feel less than? Because it does. And we could talk about things like exploitation or abuse and, and significant offenses this morning. And, and obviously we understand why that makes us feel valued less. But it doesn't even have to be something that extreme. I mean, it can just be simple things that have been done to you. So let me just say to start with here this morning, first of all, and this is something we've already said, but I want to repeat it, you are not what has been done to you. You are not what has been done to you. Secondly, you can get off the self-blame treadmill. Sometimes we're like, well, somehow I let that happen or somehow I deserved it. Let's be done with that. Stop blaming yourself and get off that treadmill because it wears you out and it takes you nowhere. But thirdly, this morning, there's hope and there's help and there's healing. And so if we're going back a little bit in the past, maybe it's something you've dealt with, and I, and I hope that's true, and hopefully this won't affect you. But if we go back this morning, maybe we're going to uncover some things that haven't been dealt with and that you're still wrestling with, and I hope that this morning could be a first step for you in finding some healing. See, all of us are in danger of this situation, though. And it doesn't have to be something, as I mentioned, it doesn't have to be something extreme. We can experience shame anytime something's done to us and where we feel like the victim. And it may be even when, going back to like when you were in high school. And maybe it was you and you were in class and a teacher called you out and embarrassed the fire out of you. And it was something that you had nothing to do with. And yet you took the shame for it. Maybe it's in a relationship where somebody else is emotionally abusive. And you're not the one saying those things, but yet you still feel that shame. Maybe it's when a friend spreads a story about you. It might be true, it might not be true, but it was a secret. And they've shared that story. And you feel the shame from it. Maybe you've grown up in a home where you had a parent who was a, a, an alcoholic or maybe abusive. Or, or maybe you grew up in poverty and you're always afraid that somebody would ask where you lived. And it was a circumstance that you had nothing to do with, no control over, and yet you still felt the shame for that morning, or for that moment. And maybe it's because you grew up in a home where you could never satisfy a parent, or where a sibling of yours was obviously the favored child, and I don't mean that to be funny. And sometimes you're like, I just don't feel good enough. Maybe it's when your company downsizes and suddenly they don't have enough value for you to keep you on when some of your co-workers are kept. There are all these different reasons why we can feel shame, and it's not what we do, 
It's what actually is done to us. And so this morning, I want to look at a story, and it's found in Genesis chapter 16, and it's a story of somebody who I believe feels incredible shame over something that she didn't necessarily do. So these situations that we face where this shame comes and we tell ourselves these, these different things about ourselves that, you know, like this was my fault or I'm damaged goods or if people knew that they would be put off or, or if, you know, I'm the only one that's, that's been through this situation and we have all these different things that we tell ourselves, these lies of shame. I think they were going through the mind of somebody else here too. And it's a story that shows up, as I mentioned, in Genesis chapter 16. It's a story of a woman who lived in Egypt, and some foreigners came through the country there, and for whatever reason, she was taken, and she was sold as a slave to these foreigners. And these foreigners took her into their home, and, and she worked for them and provided whatever they needed done. And then those foreigners left Egypt, and they took her with them. And so now she's separate. She's a slave. She has no freedom. She's separated from any family, from any for any kinfolk, and she's taken to a place where she's a stranger. And the good news in the story, I suppose, is the per person who's the slave owner is actually God-fearing, who believes in God and strives to follow God. And so you would think then that she was treated well, and we think that probably she was, at least for the first 10 years of the story. And then something happens, and something is done to her where she has no choice. The situation is forced on her, and she becomes a victim. And so we look at this story here. It's a story of shame. It's a story, though, where God shows up to do something about the shame. And we've been talking about this through this month here. This is a, a repeating idea, is that when we're dealing with shame, God comes looking for us. When Adam and Eve were hiding in their fig leaves and in the bushes, what happens? God comes to them. When the prodigal son finally starts his, his, his return home, what does the father do? The father runs to him. And in this story, again, we're going to see a God who comes to a woman in her shame. So let's read that here this morning. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And we're used to reading them as Sarah and Abraham. And so I'm going to refer to them as that through the rest of the message here this morning. But it says that she had borne him no children. And right there we're introduced to this concept of shame because in that society, that was a shameful thing for a woman. If she was childless, to be barren, that was a huge shame to carry around. And hers was intensified because earlier God had made a promise that Abraham would have a child, a son, and she had not been able to deliver that child. And so she is dealing with shame in her life. But then we introduce the next cat, uh, person into the story. She had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. And there's more shame there because she was a slave. And there's got to be incredible shame that comes with this concept of actually being owned. You think about that for a minute this morning. What would it be like to be owned by somebody else? I mean, you may have a bad boss who treats you that way, but you still go home at night. This woman had nowhere to go. And so Abraham, oh, excuse me, Sarah says to Abraham, 
The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. And supposedly this was an acceptable practice in the day. And I don't know how historians know this because it goes back so far. But the idea is that she would be a surrogate mother and the baby would be born and it would become Sarah's baby then with, uh, with Abraham just through Hagar. But there's a reminder, I think, there just in the idea that just because culture says something is acceptable doesn't mean that it's acceptable in God's sight. Because of that day, culture said that slavery was acceptable and it wasn't. And it said that culture said that polygamy was acceptable and it wasn't. And we see that today. Sometimes like what culture says is okay, it doesn't matter. It's just a sidelight, but that was what was going on here. But what's interesting about that verse right there, verse number two, there's a conversation that goes on about something that's really, really significant. And who's absent from that conversation? The person whose life is going to be forever changed. She has no voice, evidently, in this situation. So verse number three, after Abraham had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah took his, uh, her, his wife took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. And maybe that made it legal and maybe that made that better. That this was actually another one of his wives. But we see right here something that I think is true in a lot of shame situations. We see a huge abuse of power going on here. We see the power that Sarah has over this slave that belongs to her. We also see the power that Abraham has in the story. And this was definitely in the times of, of patriarchy. Uh, and, and we see this power, though, is abused. Because this woman is forced into something, we believe, that maybe wasn't her choice. And even if she agreed to it, it still didn't work. And I think it still left a huge uh, cloud of shame in its wake. But in verse number four, Abraham sleeps with Hagar and she conceived. And so Abraham and Sarah had used and abused Hagar for their own purposes. They had devalued her for what that they could get. And even if she was party to this, this was not something that was done out of love. There's no love ever expressed between Abraham and Hagar. So when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Does that mean that she looked at Sarah with contempt and saw herself as better than? That's possible. Because, hey, you know what? Okay, I've gone through this, but at least I'm pregnant. You've never been able to get pregnant, so. And that's a real possibility there. Because I think a lot of times when people experience shame, one of the ways that they deal with shame is they take it and they try to transfer it. And they try to take the, and, de, and, and deflect it so people aren't looking at them and look at somebody else. And a lot of times I think people in, in, in our world who have felt a lot of shame like to transfer that shame to other people. And that's maybe what happens here. Or it could simply mean this, that she despised Sarah for having taken advantage of her. And where she maybe appreciated at least being treated well as a servant or slave in that family, now she looked at her like, oh. And the emotional turmoil here must have become incredible because you have these two women who now can't stand each other. 
And two women, both of them, dealing with incredible shame in their lives. And finally, Sarah says to Abraham, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? This idea that I had, that you went ahead with, you're at fault. But you know what? She's kind of right. Because Abraham did have the power to say, no, we're not doing that. And he abused that power. And she goes on and says, I put my slave in your arm, and now she, that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. And these are words of desperation. And then Abraham, if there's a chance to redeem this situation, it's right here. And what does he say? Your slave? He didn't say, my other wife. He said, your slave is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think is best. And so what does Sarah think is best? Well, she reestablishes her power. And it says she mistreated Hagar. And once again, we have a conversation with Abraham and Sarah. And guess who's absent from the conversation? It's not like Abraham says, hey, we got a problem here. Let's the three of us sit down and figure this out. And once again, Hagar is taken advantage of. So she does what she only knows to do, and she flees from this situation. But think about this. When she flees, she flees. She's a slave. She could be captured and could be returned. She has nothing of her own, probably what she's wearing. She has nowhere to go. She has no way to take care of herself, and she's pregnant on top of this. And this story is just going nowhere in a big hurry. And then what happens? God comes running to a woman in her shame. And this is absolutely incredible. I love it. Look what it says here. Verse number seven, the angel of the Lord found Hagar sitting near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that was beside the road to Shur, which was probably heading back down to Egypt. We think this was probably a pre-incarnate form of Christ, but God himself goes looking for this woman, and he knows exactly where to find her. And isn't that encouraging? Then when she runs, because she doesn't know where to go, God says, I'm still coming with you. In fact, I'm going to find you in this moment. And he says to her, and notice what he says, that next word. Verse number eight, Hagar. How do you get that name? He only got that name because he knew her. He knew who she was. He knew where she was. He knew all about her. He knew all about her situation. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from? And where are you going? And she tells him where, he came, where she came from. I'm coming from my mistress Sarah, she answered. But she never says where she's going because she doesn't know where she's going. But he knows her name. He knows her story. He knows her shame. And he comes to her, and here's what's interesting. He comes to a slave, and he comes to an Egyptian slave and says, all right, let's talk about this. And the angel says to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. And I don't know exactly why God gives her this instruction. There's different reasons, and maybe we'll run into them in just a minute here. But she goes back, or she's told to go back. Let me just say this too. This is a narrative. This is not a, a, this is a descriptive story. This is not a prescriptive story. So it's not like every situation where somebody has been abused or mistreated or whatever, they should go back. That's not what this is teaching. But then the angel of verse number 10 says this, I will increase your descendants so they will be too numerous to count. Whose descendants? This, this child was supposed to be Abraham's descendant. And the angel says, oh, no, no, no. 
this child is going to be your descendant, and your family is going to become so numerous that it can't be counted. And then the angel said, you are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son, and God could have chosen to give her a daughter. He said, no, no, we're going to give you a son, and you're going to name him Ishmael, which means what? Well, the next phrase gives us an idea. The Lord has heard your misery. Ishmael means the God who hears. And it's interesting, though, that God heard her misery, not her crying. In fact, we don't see her crying in this story. He says, I hear your misery, and not just here in the desert, I hear your misery. Because if you go back to verse number 6, there's an interesting word there. It says that Sarah mistreated Hagar in verse number 6. It's the same Hebrew word that's used here when, when the angel says, I, uh, the Lord has heard your misery. Mistreatment and misery are the same words. And the point here is that God comes and says, I don't just see what's happening here and now. I see the whole story. And I see from the beginning of when you have been mistreated. And I have heard, not just seen, but I have heard the whole thing. And so he says, your son, we're going to name him Ishmael as a reminder of the fact that I hear you. And he goes on, he says, Ishmael will become a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all of his brothers. And that seems a little harsh, doesn't it? Okay, you're going to have a son, but man, everybody's going to be after him. And by the way, we're going to call him a wild donkey. But there may be an explanation for that. If we think, if you go out to the Old West, and the, the horses that were out there that were running around, the wild horses, the wild stallions, mustangs, whatever, it's very possible that this prophecy had that in mind. Your son's going to be like the wild horses. And what does that mean? Your son's going to forever live in freedom. He'll never be a slave like you are, Hagar. And this child that you're going to have born as a slave is going to live as a free person. And I think that may be why Hagar walks out of there pretty pumped, actually. And so she says this in response. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees me, Elroy. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And in this story, we have the God who runs to us in our shame. We have the God who hears our shame. We have the God who sees our shame. And we have a God who's about redeeming shame in our stories. Now, God didn't make her unpregnant and God didn't put the whole thing in, in reverse and back up time. Everything kept moving forward. And what's happened to Hagar, if, if you went to her and say, would you go through that again? She might not say yes. And a lot of times there are situations in, you know, in our lives where we go through things and we're like, I would never do that again. And we're like, well, you know, but God can use that for good. That's true. But it might have been better if it never had happened. But what I love about this story is even though it happened and even though there was no going back, God said, you know what, Hagar, I can make this matter in your life. And if you have been wronged by somebody, if you've been mistreated, if you've been abused, if you have been the victim of somebody else's behavior, I'm sorry. And I'm sincerely sorry. I wish I could undo that. But here's the good news this morning. God can make it matter. 
God can make it matter. And so she goes back. And she talks to Abraham, and she bears him a son, verse number 15. And Abraham gave him the name Ishmael. And where did he get that name? He got it from Hagar. And how did he get it from Hagar? Because Hagar went back because God said to go back. And Hagar went back and said, Abraham, I met God out there. And he told me this. And I wonder if Abraham didn't step back and say, oh, wow. And she was vindicated and validated in a huge way in that moment. So how does this story, though, help us if the shame we are experiencing is something that has been done to us? Let me just give you seven things here this morning. First of all, this. You need to get rid of the guilt. If this is a situation that you find yourself in, you need to get rid of the guilt. Guilt always precedes shame. Guilt is what you've done. Shame is how you feel about what you've done. And guilt is about the, the event, and shame becomes about the person, and we, we take that on. But we need to go back to the guilt. And if there is something that you've done where you have been complicit in that situation, then you need to deal with that. You need to confess that before God. You need to make that right. If God says, okay, that's how we deal with it. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago with the story of the prodigal son. But once you're done with that, you need to be done with the guilt. And if you're experiencing guilt or a guilt trip that somebody else has put on you, that's not real guilt, that's false guilt. And you need to be done with that. A lot of times when somebody has violated you or, or, or used you in some way, they'll try to throw that guilt on you or that shame on you so that they can control you still, so that they can manipulate you. And you need to say, no, 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 that's not mine. And whatever part of it is you deal with it, and then the rest of it, you say, I'm done with that. And we remind ourselves of this, that when Jesus came to die, he came to die for our sin, and he came to die for our shame. So we don't have to go walking around with this stuff. It can be in our past because he takes us. But especially if you've not been at fault, stop accusing yourself. Those voices of condemnation, that's not God. And we've looked at three different stories now of people dealing with shame, and we have yet to hear the voice of God at condemnation. Secondly, don't let what's been done to you define you. Don't let what's been done to you define you. Or don't let what's happened to you define you. Or don't let what's said about you define you. Whatever has happened to you doesn't define you. It defines the person that did it to you. There's a huge distinction there. And sometimes we're like, well, obviously, you know, I was weak or I was, um, in a, put myself in a bad place. And we have all these things and we start attacking ourselves and it defines us. Uh-uh. We can't let what's been done to us define us. A lot of times you haven't asked for it. You haven't deserved it. There's many times when people are victims. People are always trying to take advantage of other people. Don't let it define you. And don't stand in the shadow of the person who harmed you. Hagar, she was a pregnant Egyptian slave who had been misused. But her identity was what? She was a person valued enough by God to come find her in the desert as she sat there by herself. Thirdly, stop running. 
as painful as it may seem, maybe the best thing for you to do is to turn around and face whatever it is that's happened. And that doesn't mean that you have to go back into a bad situation, but it does mean that you need to address what happened. And sometimes we run, and sometimes like, I'm just not going to think about it, and sometimes we stuff it down, and sometimes it's like, okay, uh, I'm going to pretend like that didn't happen, or I'm just going to have to, you know, I'm going to have to buck up here, I'm just going to have to be tough, and I'm just going to have to use this to make me stronger, but we don't actually deal with the situation. And I love what God does, he says, he says where are you running? Why are you running? Because you don't need to be. And if you're running, you can stop running. And you can deal with this, and, and you can deal with this in different ways. But you need to de-shame yourself from this situation. And you need to say whatever it is, whether it goes back to something in your childhood or something, you know, whatever, to say, okay, you know what? I'm going to deal with this. I'm not going to keep bringing this forward into my story. It happened back there. Then we need to, fourthly, say no to isolation. There's two different ways that we see isolation in this story. We see the obvious in, in that um, she moves away from everybody. And, and I think she's trying to get away from the mistreatment of Sarah. But also, a lot of times when, when we have been mistreated, that's part of it. But part of it is, is we move to a place where we cut ourselves off to protect ourselves. And a lot of times we isolate ourselves, not physically, but we isolate ourselves emotionally. And we isolate ourselves relationally. And we put up these walls. And, and we're super careful because and if somebody, you know, kind of steps into that circle that we draw around there, we, we push them back out because we want to deal with it. And isolation is really what the enemy uses. Because when we get isolated, it leads us to a second thing here. When we start to tell ourselves, well, I'm the only one. This thing happened to me, and I'm the only one it's ever happened to, and so I must be terrible, or whatever the thought is that goes through, goes through your head. And that's a tool of the enemy, a weapon of the enemy, to, to put you into your own little compartment here and to not realize that there are people standing next to you close enough that you can literally put your arms around, that would put their arms around you and say, okay, we can work through this. And I don't know that we need to go spill our guts about everything, but sometimes we need to bring other people into our stories and say, hey, can I talk about this? And maybe it's a trusted friend, and maybe it's a counselor, but don't isolate yourself. Fifthly, reclaim your value. And let me just remind you, your value has never been lost. By going back, there was a statement that was made to Sarah, and it was what? You, you are not above me and how you treat me and, and, and these things. It was a statement to say you didn't win. It was also a statement to say, you know, Hagar probably hadn't done anything wrong here, maybe in the mistreatment of Sarah or the disrespect thing. But we need to reclaim our values so we see ourselves as who God sees us. And we may be victims, but we don't have to see ourselves as helpless victims. And we can see ourselves as somebody who has enough value that God would actually come looking to us as we wrestle with our shame. That's what Christmas is about, isn't it? 
Christmas is about God saying to mankind, you have so much value that I'll come to be with you. No, no, no. Let me take that a step further. You have so much value that I'll come to be one of you. And that's all of us. And all of us with the junk that's part of our stories, whether it's us or something that's been done to us, Jesus Christ comes to us and says, that's Christmas. That's why I'm here. Because you have value. And if you have diminished your own value in your own mind because of something somebody else has done or said or how they treated you, you need to go back to what God says. It says, I love you enough that I'm going to send my son to come and die in your place so that your sin and your shame can be dealt with. And I love the fact that Hagar got to go back and to say to Abraham, hey, guess what? I talked to God. I love that. It was God reestablishing that value. Let me just say this. If you're dealing with shame, a lot of things that we do is a response to this a lot of times is, I need to prove myself. I, have, I need to prove that I was better than that. Or I need to prove that I'm not what you say I am. Or I, I need to prove that, that I'm better than the opinion that you have of me. And I think a lot of children that grow up in shame-based uh, family cultures end up doing that. I've got to prove to my dad that I really am something. That I really... Don't go there. You have nothing to prove. You are valued by a God who comes and finds people in deserts. Number six. Focus on the future. The enemy wants us looking back, and shame always takes us back, 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 back. And what does God show up and say? Oh, you're going to have a son, and his name's going to be Ishmael, and he's going to be the father of a great nation. And he takes Hagar instead of saying, let's stop looking back at what happened, and let's look at what's coming here. And in your situation, I would encourage you with that. The past can't be undone, but its power can be broken. So let's put it behind us, and let's live looking forward and leaning into the promises of God. And then finally, celebrate the presence of God. I love this about this story. The names. Call him Ishmael, the God who hears. And she says, I'm going to call you Elroy, the God who hears sees. And I love about this story too, is it's the God who comes running to us in our shame. We're going to finish this morning singing a song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which means what? The God who is with us. Mike, could you help me out with something here this morning? I know you're going to finish up with this like song. I just want to go back to something I said, with something to think about here this morning. I want you to stand kind of right here. I don't want to embarrass you at all, okay? Okay, and Alan, if you could kill the lights there for me. I said something earlier that we need to stop standing in the shadow of other people's shame. Okay, if you see up there Mike, I don't know, he's pretty much in the dark, right? And Mike could be sitting there and saying, man, look at me, I'm in the dark and what have I done and, and I'm so guilty and I'm filled with so much shame. That's not his darkness. That's my darkness. 
And so many times in life when, when we deal with shame or what's been done with this, we accept the shadow that somebody throws on our lives as being our shame. It's not. And you know what the answer is? Move one way or the other. It's stepping out of that shadow of shame and it's coming to the light. And that's what Jesus offers us. Let's pray this morning. God, I'm so grateful for the fact that you love us for who you are and for who you made us to be and that you're never so put off by whatever's happened to us in our story that you walk away from us. No, you come and you find us. And so this morning, I'm sure that there's somebody sitting here and maybe it's on a very serious level. Maybe it's just on something that happened this past week where they have felt shame because of something that's happened to them. I pray that you would help them to take steps this morning that would break that shame. That they would step out of that shadow and into your light. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, and that's just my invitation to you. Two things. If you're a Christ follower, are you still carrying shame that's not yours to carry? He wants to take it from you. Will you give it to him? Is there a step here that you need to take from what we talked about this morning? And if you're not a Christ follower, oh, let me invite you to become one. This is what Jesus wants to do for you. He wants to bring light into your life. He wants to get rid of those shadows. He wants to get rid of that shame. He can forgive you. He can take your life and he can redeem it and he can make it matter. If you'll just put your faith and trust in him, you can do that right where you said a simple prayer. Your heart speaking to God, God, please come into my life. Jesus, I believe you died for me. Sin of my shame. Please forgive me. Give me new life and eternal life. God, deliver us from our shame, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.